welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Thomas van der Kastel, and he is CEO and co-founder at AWell Health. Now Thomas is a serial entrepreneur, and he made the decision to apply his expertise to optimize patient journeys and care pathways in healthcare in 2018 and that is when he founded the company AWOL Health and to date they work with approximately 25 hospitals across Europe and allow users to create digital care pathways to help ease the burden on clinical staff and improve patient outcomes. So this was an awesome episode of Thomas, you're going to hear all about his background, how he made his way into healthcare from definitely not a healthcare background and everything that he's up to with AWOL Health and what the company are doing with that incredible scale across Europe. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. So Thomas, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? I'm, uh, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, very well. I'm uh, enjoying it in sunny Weybridge. I'm telling everybody at the moment that I've just bought a new house. And so, well, I say new house, I bought a house, my first ever house. And so uh, I've got more than one room to actually walk around in. And uh, it's, uh, it's very pleasant, mate. I must, uh, I must admit, it's, re- it's very nice. So uh, that's, that's my life at the moment. How's the second lockdown treating you? Well, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, this is a podcast, so there's only voice if you could see me because um, I'm actually calling from the pantry. That's from <laughs> I did see this because we turned our video on very briefly beforehand and I, I was going to comment, but then I thought, oh, maybe not. But it did look like you were in like a shed <laughs> or something. It was like light bulbs yeah, on a well, string so and like lots of things on the shelves. <laughs> I've I've had all kinds of comments like uh, uh, international space station or Harry Potter's um, <laughs> closet under the under the stairs. So Do you know what? Uh, Can you flick your it's... video on for one second? I'm going to take a screenshot and I'm just going to I'm going to make this available to people in the description of the episode if they want to see where you are. And a lovely smile <laughs> from you as well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, b- before Corona, uh, I was regularly working from home as well, and then um, I never put on my camera because I was actually yeah, I, I was a bit ashamed of it, right? <laughs> Calling from the country. <laughs> uh, but then when, when Corona hit and it was full on uh, working from home, I just said, you know, what the hell? Let's, let's go full Monty and just share, <laughs> share it always. And so, but I've had nothing but really great. It's a, it's a fantastic icebreaker because yeah. You see people looking in the camera and they say, oh my God, where is this guy calling from? <laughs> and then uh, I just, I just, it's an icebreaker to say, hey, I'm, I'm calling you from the International Space Station. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. So we, 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 we also, we, we raised in actually when, when the lockdown, um, uh, you know, was first announced in, in March, uh, that's when we closed our, our seed round. And, and two weeks after our VC organized this health tech showcase with, with investors from around the world. There was oh, yeah. like Google Ventures and that, that, those kinds of people. Oh, wow. And so I, I, <laughs> I hesitated a bit before that uh, call because there, I think there were 60, 70 VCs in the call, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I did it as well because, and, 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 and I've been talking to some of those VCs and they still, they still say, oh yeah, you were the guy calling from the international space there you go mate you're uh, peacocking with your background that's amazing um very good very good so listen thomas the way that we start these is uh we get you to tell your story and you've uh, given us a nice little preview there closing your seat around in march but um yeah for the benefit of our listeners why don't you um, and me because we've i've never heard this before so uh yeah why don't you tell us a bit about your story sure so um 
AWOL was founded by myself and, and Jan, uh, my, my technical co-founder, but I'll, I'll tell my story a little bit. So I'm an architect by training, um, but never became an architect because I was too impatient. Uh, I didn't want to wait 10 years for a, for a building to be erect after having <laughs> the idea about it. But then, then paradoxically, I, I, I went into healthcare, which is also a challenge for impatient people, uh, especially when you want to sell something to hospitals. But mm -hmm, um, absolutely. But let's say that after the architecture study, um, I actually worked as an architect in my last year of study and then, and then saw how, how badly architects were at running businesses. So I thought, I, I don't want to go there. I want to learn a bit about business. I did a, a junior MBA for a year and then was actually, let's say, um, uh, entering into a management traineeship at InBev, which is uh, the world's biggest brewer. Uh, you might know that from Stella Artois, which is a, a pretty well-known beer throughout oh, yeah. the world. Uh, and so this was a management traineeship, but I, I totally didn't like the corporate environment. I wanted to start something myself and, and, you know, go home and have actually a clue about what I had done that day that delivered value to the business or to customers. And so I quit after 10 months. And then this was the beginning of e-commerce. It was uh, 2006. And I thought, okay, I had, I had some, some technical skills. So launched an e-commerce business. Uh, and I ran that for a couple of years. And what we were uh, especially doing or focusing on was, was optimizing the customer journey. So understanding how our buyers came either through Google or Facebook or other channels and then went through the website, different pages on the website and trying to optimize all of those steps, looking at the end result, which is basically how much they were buying or, or what, what, what you know, the basket size was, uh, how many newsletters they were, were you know, subscribing to, how many brochures they were downloading, etc. And mm. so um, that was really our focus, which I, I love doing, uh, looking at these customer journeys and optimizing them with the, with the end result in mind. Now, the bad thing about e-commerce for me was that it, it, lacked, it lacked purpose. Uh, I wanted to do something in my life with, with more purpose than just buying goods and selling them for a higher price. So sure. uh, the e-commerce story didn't last uh, for too long. So I sold the activities. And then I was, for a couple of years, a uh, strategic consultant where I, where I took that expertise about optimizing customer journeys and and did that for all kinds of companies small and large worked for samsung europe etc uh, until i actually stumbled upon healthcare and and up to that point my understanding of healthcare was that it worked in exactly the same way as i was doing with my teams um on 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 you know e-commerce and online marketing being that you have a multidisciplinary team that is looking at every step of the journey and optimizing all of those steps in order to realize the best results of their work. But nothing could have been farther from the truth. Uh, apparently healthcare uh, was, and still is to a very large extent, organized around fee-for-service. Uh, it's a, it's a volume-based uh, mm -hmm. world where people are getting incentivized for the activities that they perform, is it a surgery, a treatment, a consultation. And that basically nobody was, was really looking at the end result of their care delivery process, which is basically the outcomes that they realize for their patients. And this was so surprising to me because I, I was like an alien that landed on the world. And, and, and you know, if, if you would ask an, an alien to design the ideal healthcare system, it would not look like the fee-for-service model that we know globally. It would look much more like what we now call value-based healthcare, where you have 
um, a focus much more on the outcomes that are the result of your care delivery process and, and the cost to deliver those outcomes. Yeah. And so I was immediately drawn to this challenge uh, and also saw that that value-based healthcare, this, that this transition had actually just started to be kicked off. And then I, I it, actually the choice was pretty easy to say, you know, uh, let's stop wasting our lives on online marketing and e-commerce and start spending our hours on, 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 on actually applying exactly the same concepts uh, to healthcare. Wow, what, what a journey that is, mate. I think I'd like to talk to you first of all about uh, something that you mentioned very early on there, impatience, and that being a bit of a, a bit of a, th- a theme, I suppose, in in your career decisions. Obviously, architecture being a very long slog, not only at university, but then as you say, to realise the impact of what you've actually designed and and done for it to be built would obviously take a decade or something along those lines to to see all that stuff. But also, I suppose then. Talking about impatience in in terms of building a company or indeed becoming an entrepreneur and the requirement to see impact. I suppose my relationship with impatience is I can remember being a clinician and I can remember being on the wards and wanting to see change and wanting to see things get better. And that was my impatience. I was impatient for seeing change and I could see so many people doing audits which is basically just redefining and redefining again the problem and that was frustrating to me and I think impatience frustration whatever you want to call it it was that it was that feeling that I suppose propelled me into trying to to fix things and I started doing quality improvement and then that led me to accelerators and talking to startups and that sort of thing so I suppose I suppose I can I can appreciate that and I can I can appreciate how that ties in I suppose to purpose as well that you were also I suppose the impatience along with the fact that you weren't feeling that purpose from e-commerce as well later down the line it's sort of almost not inevitable but I can see why healthcare was was where you've ended because you can apply that impatience to something with purpose and you can actually make a change. And that seems to be something that, that has been with you the whole time, if I've got that right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, you make, you make a really good point about um, clinicians being frustrated about the pace of change. Uh, and it's also something that, that we are seeing as well. And I have, a, I have a bit of a theory around that. Obviously, it's not, it's not a validated theory. Uh, welcome <laughs> to give any comments. But Hit me. But uh, when, when clinicians start uh, their education, the very, very first thing they learn is, is first do no harm. Correct. Right. And, and so basically that instills the idea that the status quo is, is, is potentially better than changing something. And so you get this global system of people who, who are trained to be risk averse. So they, they, are, they are risk averse and so they are also change averse. Uh, and even if mentally they would like things to change, when it really comes down to it, um, they, they, they often go back to the status quo. So that, that's my theory around that. Do you, know, do you know what? I'm going to build on that theory and I'm going to say that that starts in medical school and it starts with from day one, well, we were anyway, from day one, you're negatively marked. And so even for your exams, but you know, this is the first impression that you have on of, of medicine. As soon as you start learning about medicine, you are taught that 
if you get something, if you have a go at an answer and you get it wrong, it's minus one. If you get it right, it's plus one. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to abstain, which means you get zero. And so you're told from a very, very early age or even what you, anything that you associate with medicine, you associate with this idea of, I can't get anything wrong because there's negative consequences. And as you say, that's reinforced by the Hippocratic Oath, first, you know, heart, like all that sort of stuff. And you're right, we're, we're teaching this risk aversion right from day one, uh, even, even with, with the exams in medicine, which doesn't really chime with, uh, <laughs> with building a, a generation of, uh, of entrepreneurs for me. And again, I don't really know the effect that that has. I'm sure it doesn't have as great an effect as I'm alluding to here, but it must have some effect and, and probably for really good reasons, right? It probably does genuinely make better doctors because they are risk averse. But I agree that for people like myself that I suppose have that entrepreneurial tendency or indeed anybody that wants to see change that doesn't want to necessarily fall back on the status quo, it does definitely create attention. And I suppose um, for businesses like yourself, that's where you get your ideas or your people or recruitment or whatever it is trying to find those people that are perhaps uh, rubbing against the system for those reasons. Well, well, I think that medicine, more than any other sector in the world, uh, revolves around knowledge, right? And how do you acquire knowledge? It's about trying things and, and taking the lessons and then applying those lessons. And uh, I'm trained as an architect, which is, which is an engineering study. And so the first thing you learn is to just try something out, see if it works. If it doesn't, you, you, you improve on your design, right? Yeah. And so the whole mindset, uh, which, which is, by, by the way, captured in, in what a lot of people know as the, the PDCA cycle or the PDSA cycle, but that's, the, that's this continuous feedback loop of just experimenting and then taking knowledge and, and applying that new knowledge. But it's exactly that cycle that is broken in healthcare because it, it takes, I mean, research shows that it's about 17 years, one seven, on average, for scientific evidence to be widespread on the clinical work floor. That means that when you walk into an average hospital, you're actually 17 years behind on the latest scientific wow. evidence. And, and, and I, as someone who is relatively new to the healthcare space, and, and, and by the way, also as a taxpayer, right, I'm a taxpayer, when I walk into these mm -hmm. Um, environments that are paid with my taxes. I'm, I'm actually pretty uh, selfish about that. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be dealing with uh, 17 years of, you know, um, delay in, in the latest scientific evidence. So that's, that's something that I, as, a, as an entrepreneur with AWOL, want to, want to change. I love that, man. And so the next thing that I just want to touch on before we talk about AWOL is you mentioned value-based healthcare, and you mentioned, I suppose, the uh, what that does in terms of setting the coordinates for, for I suppose, the, the right incentives for the ways that people des redesign the system or indeed contribute improvements. I'm interested just to hear your thoughts, I suppose, on, on value-based healthcare in terms of where, where we're going towards it. Like, do you, think, do you think we're on the right path here? Do, what, what do you think could happen to make us realize that a bit, a bit more, a bit better? And, and I suppose incentivize people, incentivize people like entrepreneurs and politicians even to actually you know set the system up so it helps patients better rather than just focuses on financials or as you say you know doing no harm at the the, the sacrifice of innovation I mean, what, what do you think about all that sort of stuff well it's it's indeed true that the the, the term value-based healthcare especially in the u.s has a has a financial connotation that it's all about financial 
reorganization. But if you look closely uh, at the writings around value-based healthcare and the core concepts that, that Michael Porter, who coined the term together with, with Elizabeth Theisberg, um, uh, came up with, it's, it's really about reorganizing care delivery processes. And if you reorganize a process, then, then, then obviously uh, your cost will go along with that. And, and then also the financial incentivation could follow along with that, but, but not, not necessarily. I, ideally, yes, right? And so um, what, what we see is that there's a lot of uh, clinicians, so a, a lot of bottoms up uh, grassroots willingness to evolve towards a value-based healthcare model. Why? Because if you talk to clinicians, then they realize that the fee-for-service model, one, it's not sustainable. We, we all agree that it's not sustainable because it, it just leads to, to the increase in uh, GDP spend on healthcare worldwide without a linear increase in quality of healthcare. So everybody understands that problem. And so uh, they understand that this new model of value-based healthcare is, is actually the better model. And if we could start from scratch and if we would have those aliens coming to the earth and ask them, you know, what, what would an ideal healthcare system look like? They understand intuitively that, that that's the better model. Uh, and then it just becomes, you know, how do we transition to that model? And, and, and but that's much more linked to, you know, specific countries with their specific uh, incentivation schemes and financials and, and with insurers and, and whatnot. So, and, and that's, that's actually where the, where the challenge lies. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is that conceptually, everybody understands that it, this is the better model, but uh, implementing that's just, it's a gigantic oil tanker that we all need to try to change um, course, which is gonna take time. Yeah, I like that. You've yeah, summarized that extremely well. And I suppose that leads us nicely onto ABLE and what you guys are doing. And I'm interested in when you had the idea for ABLE, and as you say, you're not from a healthcare background. And so you've obviously you know, had this foray into health now to, to do this. What prompted that with you? What gave you the idea? How did you meet your co-founder? How did you then turn the idea into MVP, you know, creating a reality out of this stuff? Tell me through, uh, talk me through that journey of the early days. Yeah, so I met Jan at uh, at a startup weekend about a year before we uh, before we found, founded AWell, and um, we had been working together on on a hobby project. So Jan is um, he's a self taught programmer, and he was working at McKinsey at the time, so as a strategic consultant, and we were working on a hobby project at the time uh, until we stumbled on that problem in healthcare. Um, and so what we actually did, because I, I was also being a strategic consultant at the time, and, and what we did was through our network, we found a clinician who was going to spend money on uh, a local web developer. I think it was even his nephew. He was going to give his nephew 10,000 euros to build something for him. And we actually convinced him on a PowerPoint that he should give that money to us. So we, we, didn't, we didn't write any... <laughs> wow. We didn't write one line of code before we sold to our first customer. Um, and so he basically, obviously this took, this took a couple of conversations. This was, this was not just a one-time conversation and, and we knew the physician through, through our network. But uh, in any case, he made the commitment to give us that money instead of his local uh, web developer, which was, the, which was basically the beginning, uh, the beginning of AWOL. That's awesome. And so how did you then turn, well, first of all, what is, what was the idea at the time? Tell me about that. What was it that you found a specific problem to solve? Was it that 
someone came to you, can you do this for it? Like what, what was it that kind of sparked you to, to take, well, what is the problem that you're taking on and uh, what sparked you to, to, to build a solution? Yeah, so the, the insight that we, we had and still have is the following. Is that there's, there's a gigantic amount of attention going to data in healthcare and everything around data, which is making data more interoperable, uh, structuring data, visualizing data, doing AI and ML. All of, all of those concepts are data plays, what we call. Okay. Um, now, all of that is actually trying to look at how reality is happening and then making a picture of it and then and then making making that data hopefully smart and do something with that so so building knowledge from that but what is missing there is actually the the other side of the medal which is the workflow right and which is prospectively uh indicating towards everybody in the care delivery process which is not only the clinicians physicians nurses uh, psychologists, what have you, but also the patient in, in making them understand what is the ideal next step that you should take in the care delivery process. And so when I was doing these uh, consultancy assignments uh, to optimize customer journeys in, in, in e-commerce and in, and, and, and in software and online marketing, we had these tools where we could actually lay out uh, the ideal steps for our customers and, and actually almost force them into that process because we knew that following that process would lead to uh, buying more uh, or buying more expensive uh, items or, or returning more often to, to the website to buy, right? And so the idea that we have is that AWELL is this tool to, to design your ideal care pathways as a, as a care team. So you, you can easily visually design these care pathways. And then you can also use our tool to execute the care pathways, which means that it, it triggers the right steps at the right time to the right person. So who does what, when, and where. Uh, and then uh, along the way collects all of the outcomes, which allows you to look at the outcomes of your care delivery process, and then take those insights and, and then go back to the drawing board and, and update your care delivery process to either improve your outcomes or reduce your costs or, or ideally both. I must say, as somebody who is now, you know, running a company that has processes and has, uh, you know, clients that need different things and depending on what we do, it triggers other things. You know, I'm looking at this just thinking, I would absolutely love to use this for Sonics. <laughs> I'm, looking at, I'm looking at your website now and I'm looking at like, you know, then this happens, then, then there's a lab test, you know, there's some remote symptom monitoring. If something triggers, it triggers this and then this person's informed and then they have to do this. And then depending on the result, they do this. And I'm looking at this video on your website now about how all this kind of works. And it just looks, it just looks glorious. It just looks like you can really see how a hospital would could actually map their entire system out on this stuff. Um, yeah. So what we what we see and what we saw back then is that um, actually a lot of hospitals have these kind of flowcharts. Uh, yeah. They've 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 spent a lot of time creating flowcharts, but they live as static formats in on intranets, right? Or they, they printed them and and then they hang on the wall for three years. But coming back to my comment on you know, running 17 years behind on average on, on the latest scientific evidence, those are, those are static elements that not only make it difficult to update them, but yes. also to, to follow them in clinical practice because who has time to go to the wall and to look at the flowcharts right. 
and, and, and to follow that flowchart or to go to the, the right space in the intranet. And so mm. we, our, our platform really acts as a, as a trigger towards uh, those, those people to do the right thing at the right time. Mm. And, and by the way, including the patient, which is, which is not to be underestimated, mm. the patient. So I, I'm going to say a very contrarian thing here, um, which is everybody always says that the patient should be central. Well, well we actually disagree. Right, mm. uh, and that might sound really contrarian, but bold, I'll, I'll, bold I'll saying it. that as a yeah, quote. Bold saying. <laughs> I'll, I'll unpack it a bit. We think that value should be central, and that around value you have the clinical team, but also the patient, and and obviously the patient is the biggest benefactor of the value that is realized by you know the circle around that value, but the patient should also be an active participant. Right, mm. L- live a healthier life. Because if you live a healthier life, you'll weigh less on the healthcare system. Okay, if you are diagnosed with something, read, you know, read the information that is given to you. Don't don't just put it on the cupboard, uh, you know, uh, but read it and understand what's going to happen to you because you'll be better informed. And and science shows that you'll be you'll be better off. Uh, you'll get better outcomes actually if you as a patient are, are better informed. People are much too passive at the moment and they think that the healthcare system is going to give them everything and, and, and hash everything out for them. Don't, don't do that. You need to be more proactive as a patient. And we allow the clinicians to build that proactivity into their care pathways by triggering the patient at the right time to do activity X, look at information Y, or, or, or provide data Z in order to make better decisions. Yeah, you make a very, very convincing argument, and I can completely appreciate that. I think one thing, even of late, that seems to be on the agenda more and more is this idea of responsibility as well. And you mentioned it there that in order for the patient to be the, the, the biggest benefactor of the value, by, I suppose by focusing on the value over, over focusing the pa- on, on the patient is always right is another way, I suppose, of, of putting the, the opposite is that by focusing on the value, you enable your system to, as you quite rightly put, tell the patient that it is in part up to them to exercise every day and eat right. And that will allow them to realize the value. It's not saying that, you know, the system's going to ignore you if you don't do that. But what it is saying is that if we're all focused on the value, this is your part that you can play in creating the value. And by the way, you're the one that recoups most of the benefit when you when we get the value and i suppose that's what you're saying which is super interesting one thing one question i did have though so i'm looking at this video now on your website that you know there's a there's an intake or a take or an on-call whatever you want to call it patients come into the hospital they have a lab test or they go through the diagnostic process or whatever there's then a multitude of things that can happen whether we admit them into hospital whether we put them on remote monitoring and send them home whether we send them home with absolutely nothing i'm looking at this and i'm thinking it opens the door for automation, right? It opens the door for a lot of things being automated that are potentially at the moment processed or even over processed potentially. Where do you guys sit in terms of using this to then automate a lot of processes? And by the way, I don't then, well, I I, I do then say that in, in the appreciation of to get to this nirvana of automation, this would have to be interoperable with just about every single system that a hospital and a GP practice even would use to automate the whole thing. But I suppose, is that the goal, that a lot of this stuff is automated, that we can free up clinician and administrative time? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we already go a long way towards that automation because indeed we do integrate with, with EMRs and, and, and other systems. Nice. Now there's a, there's a very fine balance uh, between um, removing all potential variation in the process, right? Mm. Which is if you go, so the, the, there's actually a challenge with automation and processes. So assume that you, you set your ideal process and then you automate the hell out of it, right? <laughs> there's no such thing as the average patient. You, you need to have <laughs> yes. points in that process where you can override the automation because the last thing that you want is that, you know, you don't have, you, you have clinicians that don't think anymore because they yes. need their brain and they need to yes. make sure that at the points where it's relevant, that they can apply individualization. Yeah, and so, frankly, if I can jump in there, you need to, I suppose, having been a clinician myself, I, it needs to, any automated process, I believe, would need to give clinicians the space to practice the art of medicine. There is a science, we know there is a science, it is a heavy component, but there is also an art to medicine. And another way that you could put that, I suppose, is that you, for me, it would need to allow the space for gut feel. And so sometimes, you know, I can remember one really specific case in, in A&E where all the numbers of this patient in diagnostic form were absolutely fine. Everything looked on the face of it absolutely fine. But for whatever reason, I just decided to keep this patient until they were about to breach in A&E. And there was no actual reason for it. I was under loads of pressure from uh the sister in charge to just get 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 them out you know that they're going to breach we don't need them here they're taking for bed all the rest of it but for every reason i just kept them in and just before they were about to breach they they perforated their stomach lining and started <laughs> vomiting blood and there was there was obviously something that i'd seen that you know my gut feel was based on something whether it was that they looked pale whether it was that this or that the other I didn't obviously trust the hemoglobin for whatever reason. There was something that, that about it that I was receiving a cue that wouldn't have been necessarily in the data that wouldn't necessarily have been in, you know, the automation would have sent them home. And so I suppose there always needs to, as you quite rightly put, there needs to be that element. And, and I suppose it's nice that, that you appreciate that. Yeah. So how we look at this is that currently, so people have only one brain, right? Uh, which is unfortunate. And, and that brain, that brain hasn't evolved exponentially, but but the the amount of scientific evidence is evolving exponentially. If you look at the curve on uh, you know at at, at what rate uh, scientific evidence is being published, it's it's impossible for any brain to to continuously know what to do when right. Mm. And so how we look at it is that right now all of these brains, all of these clinicians are have to think have to try to think of everything, but that's impossible. Okay. Yeah. So what you need to try to do is to not make them think anymore, anymore about the things that they don't have to think yes. about anymore through automation and processes and things that are so obvious. Let's just take that away from you and, and indeed yeah, the low hanging fruit, over it. The low hanging fruit. Yeah. Indeed. But then uh, uh, apart from that, what you need to do is, is allow for exactly what you say that, that they can apply their brains to those things that machines cannot do, right? And and that's that's uh, that's what uh, what makes us truly human, and uh, and where we can play the most value. I to I totally agree, man. I totally agree. So I'm interested now in obviously the the example on your website and the video that I've just watched scroll around a hundred times now. But that's obviously one example of you know someone comes in and the, then we triage them and we say are they admitted are they not what do we do blah blah blah. 
what's the scope of this? I mean, what sort of things, what, what sort of departments are you in? What sort of processes are you mapping out and helping with and, you know, automating to a point? How far does this go? And I suppose pertinent to right now, is there any kind of COVID-19 element to what you're doing? Is there kind of a plug and play element for that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the last one. Yes, we, we have several COVID-19 uh, pathways available. There's screening pathways, there's post-discharge pathways. We yeah, because I can see how this work. would be super helpful, man. Like with the with the moving guidelines really quickly, this is something that you could put in once and I suppose would update as the guidance updates. Yeah, yeah. And then there, there's also pathway for, for oncology patients who are um, uh, COVID positive uh, because oh, they're obviously... Uh, patients with with a much higher risk of of deterioration now coming back to your your the first part of your question uh, this is also something that that is a bit of a bit contrarian uh, about AWOL when we started so the the common sense knowledge in healthcare and and in a lot of startups for entrepreneurs the, the, it's the mantra of trying to focus right focus 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 yeah. focus on one thing and then um, and then and then do something else but what we immediately saw is that a hospital uh, or a trust in UK is not looking to buy 200 different apps, right? The diabetes app, the COVID app, yeah. the, the total knee replacement app. The, these people want a platform that is, that is agnostic to medical conditions and that allows their different departments to build whatever processes they want to put in place. Yes. And so from the very, very start of AWOL, we took that route, contrary to what a lot of people advised us to do. And we said, we're going to build uh, a medical condition agnostic platform. And indeed today we have pathways running um, ranging from orthopedics to oncology to gastrointestinal to, for example, IBD, which is a chronic disease. We have chronic pain, there is uh, low back pain, etc. So it's really a wide array of pathways that are being supported by, by our platform today. Yeah, I get it. And it's, um, as, I, as I say, I, I think, that that is it is quite a mature approach. I'm just wondering, I suppose, as I answer this, like, it is is coming from a non healthcare background an advantage here, because of the fact that you've got fresh eyes over a pretty chaotic spaghetti plate of processes and systems that need unpacking, and those people that are in that now need help to do different bits and bobs. I mean. Do you think it has been an advantage with those fresh eyes from an area that wasn't healthcare before? Well, I would say that in the beginning, it was def definitely not an advantage, uh, but, but, it, mm. but it has definitely become an advantage. Uh, and why it was not an advantage is because we, we had to learn really fast a lot of you know, uh, domain-specific knowledge. So, for example, I was doing all of the sales in the beginning and, and being an architect and then an e-commerce player, I, I had to talk to physicians and try to talk their language and yes. and i had to do that not only with the knee surgeon but i had to do it with the gastroenterologist and the neurologist as well so i had to ra rapidly oh, uh, uh, try to to speak their language because yes. they were they were throwing terms at me that yeah, that, that, that i, I had never heard of so so in the beginning that was definitely it required fast learning but but i think coming back to your your comment about you know fresh eyes yeah i think that that pair of fresh eyes definitely we turned it into an advantage uh, yeah, because you've seemingly, you know, looking at your your library of pathways and stuff, it seems that you've you've managed to simplify something that I imagine was there's always such complexity. I think it was Jonathan from Perfect Ward actually that said this originally on this podcast that like episode five or something, 
But there is always this incredible complexity that is behind anything that looks simple. It's one of the hardest things to do to make things look simple. But it seems as if that you've, you've tried and very successfully managed to do that. I think it was Elliot from Infinity Health as well that said the thing is in healthcare, as soon as you start pulling on one thread, you realize that absolutely everything is connected and <laughs> you can't actually end up solving a problem, in their case, just fixing the handover process without actually fixing how people manage tasks for the entire 12 hours prior to handing them over. And so it's always about trying to solve those problems end to end. It seems well, that, that you've been on that journey too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that ties into what I've been saying from the beginning. There is no need to solve all of the problems in one go. You need to have this engineering mindset. We actually have to re-engineer healthcare, right? Yeah. The engineering mindset where you, you look at your processes and you try to get out the one or two points where there can be an immediate improvement. And then you, you continuously work to, to improve all of the points in the process, right? But you have to mm. start somewhere. And so our platform aims at, at allowing end-to-end, -end basically from, from symptoms until, until death of the patient, basically, especially in chronic disease where, where, where there's no cure possible. Mm. And in, and in, and in, 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 in medical, medical conditions where there is cure possible, it ends maybe one or two years after the medical condition. Yeah. But anyway, our, our platatform allows to manage that end end to end but that doesn't mean you have to do it end to end from the beginning yeah or that you have to put all of the layers in place right you could say we're going to start by optimizing for example just the patient's journey and we're not going to look yeah. at what the clinicians are doing or we could we could start with optimizing you know the clinician's journey and then we're going to leave the patient out out of it for the moment but you need a flexible platform for that and that's also an important one a platform that does not require hospital IT to you know to you have to be self sufficient as a care team because hospital IT teams are completely under the water and have no time and very often these people there's a disconnect between what the clinician wants and what the IT team un can understand about what the clinician wants mm. and that's one of the comments that we we've gotten a lot in the past is that clinicians told us that they had been trying to convey what they wanted to their IT teams but they just didn't get what they what they wanted and that yeah. and that they they could tell that to us because we had we came with this fresh pair of eyes and and apparently we understood something about what they wanted that the, that the hospital IT team couldn't uh, understand yeah i get it the next thing that i want to ask you about is is data you're you guys are in the game of I suppose, I was going to say weaponizing data, you're not weaponizing data, but you're certainly using data to strengthen everything that you're doing in terms of the, the strength of the pathways. If you're going to realize that ultimate value, the more data that's swilling around the hospital uh, that you guys can harness, I suppose, the better. One thing that I hear quite a lot, especially again, quite recently, is that we don't really harness much data in a hospital compared to the amount that's actually there. You think about an operating room and all the data that the actual humans are taking in in order to make decisions and everything that could then be harnessed and used and to, to help us make a better system. There's actually not that much data that you actually use. In, in terms of the way that you guys think about data, is it something that you're also trying to do which is thinking about how we capture all those different types of data and how you end up harnessing it or is it that you're just sort of happy with the bits that you've got i mean what 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 are you kind of looking at in terms of data when it comes to i guess scaling improving changing the way that you guys do things 
Yeah, so I think again we're we're a bit contrarian there to 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 common sense knowledge, which is um, people are really looking at data as as a treasure trove that that holds all of the answers uh, to their challenges. Mm. But just collecting more data and trying to get more insights from that data will will only you know bring them bring them that far. And and there's this very important concept called value of value of information, which which is basically uh, I'll I'll just summarize it is that at any point in the care delivery process where you need to make a decision, and you you have let's say a uh, hundred parameters to look at, not all hundred parameters are equally important for that decision at that time. So you probably need this is the Pareto law, right? You you probably need. Point. Maybe maybe 20 of those hundred will will define you know 80% of the result of the yeah. decision that you take at that time. So we don't we are not in in the camp you know of let's collect more data and and you know uh, and and try to get insights from that. We are in the camp of you know what are the what are the most important KPIs and and I'm I'm intentionally using the word KPI key performance indicators mm-hmm. uh, that we should look at. Um, and and what are the most important data points that we need to collect in the pathway to feed those KPIs um, in in order to understand how we're doing as a team? Yeah, which gets us to the point where the workflow is the most important thing. And actually, yeah, again, I totally agree with you because my, I suppose, skepticism or cynicism when it comes to people saying like, oh, we only collect 10% of data in an operating room or or whatever it is, I'm kind of like, well, okay, the 100% of data is going through a human being and all the processing power of that expert without us needing to throw in any extra ways of of collecting it right now. And it's doing a pretty good job of getting us to that 10% that we then use to do other things. Or, you know, perhaps it goes into the anesthetic machine and use that to like whatever it is. But the point I'm trying to make is that we already, we're already synthesizing a lot of that data and, and working on it in our own minds as human beings. And we've all got, you know, careers and expertise and experience to to do that i think you know the argument that okay well we could combine it we could collect it we could have the collective experience of every anesthetist or surgeon ever in the world and and use that to, to make decisions and it's like okay fine but at the end of the day there is a problem to be solved now there are processes to make better now and i think what i like about what you guys are doing is that it sounds like you've you've got almost a maturity of of the simplicity of it you want to just say look this is where we are this is what we've got this is what we'll use and we don't need to use all of it necessarily but we're just trying to make your life a bit better we're trying to make everybody's life a bit better the patient the clinician everybody involved in the care of of these people and it's just a case of putting together the best process and system that we've got right now which by the way can improve as we go on and get more data and those things do mature and, and change i guess yeah, so that, when, that when seems to be where one of the most powerful forces in the universe is, is compounded interest, right? Uh, when <laughs> you talk about finances, but but in the very in, in the same way, there's no silver bullet in healthcare. What you mm. need to do is just get started, but then continuously, systematically improve on what you're doing. And if you can do that as a care team, and this this comes back this comes back to the to the whole notion of value-based healthcare. So if you are the you know the minister of health and you can spend the healthcare budget you can decide where it goes right mm-hmm. and you have you have two hospitals and one hospital has been continuously improving their care on a quarterly basis a yearly basis whatever but they have this very strict cadence where they can show you know we started here and we improved and we improved and we improved and we improved and then the other hospital has just been has just been doing things right um 
where, where do you want to spend your money? Obviously, you want, you want to spend it on the side where, where there's continuously improvement because that's a gift that's going to keep on giving in the, in the years to come. And that's what value-based healthcare is about because the, the care teams who, who have the systematic approach to, to improving outcomes and reducing the cost to deliver those outcomes, they will get all of the patient volume in, in the mm. end. Not because they, they are in a specific region, what's, what's currently the case, right? You're in a specific region or, uh, or, or whatever. That's, that's why you get patient flow. No, no, you'll get patient flow because you have the very best outcomes at yeah. an acceptable cost to deliver those outcomes. Yeah, I get it. So what's the future for you guys? What are you guys looking to achieve? Or in fact, you know, what are you achieving right now? Where, where is this being used? And what are you looking to achieve as, as we go on into the next sort of, you know, year, two year, five years, 10 years? What are you guys looking to achieve? Yeah, so we, we were, let's say, regional in, in the Benelux until, until March um, because we, had been, we have been actually bootstrapped until March. We, we raised our first external capital uh, in March from a London VC, uh, Local Globe. And, oh, yeah, uh, Local really, Globe, nice. Yeah, really happy to have them on board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we love them. They, uh, they are a very product-focused fund, so they say let's, let's really build the very best product that yeah. we've got out there. And uh, and so now we're already getting we're getting users uh, through the door from from a bit of a wider region uh, as well. So go, going into the UK and Germany, and we're looking at the US as well. Now the where we want to be uh, in a couple of years is that um, there is this idea that everybody's working in their own little corner on their care pathways. Yeah. But there probably is a an ideal care pathway uh, out there for, for, for a given medical condition. And how, how you can get to that ideal care pathway and then make that one evolve, it, 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 it looks a lot like how open source software evolves, where you have different teams throughout the world contributing to the open source software code base, uh, each one contributing from their own either expertise or, or science or, or whatever. And so that's, that's actually something that we are now working towards is that the, the pathway library that you saw on our website, which is currently fed manually, but in the coming months, we're going to basically open that up. And because our system is free to use, the, 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 the pathway studio where you can, you can build any pathway is that you'd like, it, oh, is, wow. it is free to use. So you, you only start paying basically once you in, include individual patients, but the, the whole designing and validating and approving that's that's oh, free wow. to use, and so the kind of um, fly we we want to create, we hope to create, is that clinicians worldwide will use our tool to create their care pathways, to share them with others, that others improve on them, and then commit back to the community. And then, uh, very much like open source software, we hope that in a couple of years, you get these ideal care pathways who will rise, you know, to the top, uh, where yeah. you have tens, dozens, hundreds of contributors each continuously suggesting improvements and that those improvements can be included, right, by the original mm -hmm. authors. You, you'll always have this kind of core team that, that will, you know, take, take the suggestions and then either include them or not, but that then make that again wi more widely available to the rest of the, mm -hmm. uh, of the users. Amazing. Awesome, man. Like I absolutely love it. I think what you guys are doing is, um, is really cool. I think it's, it's so, it's so needed and, I think, yeah, have you got any asks of our audience? So we've got listeners obviously across the world, you know, people obviously that might have a decision-making power in hospitals perhaps, but um, yeah, do you want to hit us with some asks of the audience? Well, I mean, 
and anybody currently working in you know excel powerpoint word visio whatever tool you're currently using to design your care processes please have a look at our website and and come and see whether we can beat those tools that that were not built for the purpose we are built for the purpose and we're also free to use so maybe it's interesting for you to have a look and uh, and and you're very welcome to yeah to embark on that journey with us to create this continuous learning healthcare system Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, Thomas, or indeed the company, where can they find you? Well, it's awellhealth.com. That's the best entry gate. Uh, it's our website. And uh, there's a lot of buttons there where you can either request a demo or, or, or even, you know, start using the software or, or enter the contact form. So that's probably the best way to do it. Perfect. Thomas, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, no, it's been my pleasure. And, uh, and, and, uh, Lots of luck, James, with this fantastic podcast. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.